And we are in, as as you know, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the word of God. And we are currently in the gospel of Matthew chapter nine. We begin chapter nine this afternoon. So go ahead and turn to Matthew. If you're new to the scriptures, there's the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's the first book of the New Testament. Are you well, the 40th book of of scripture? Chapter nine. We read this. So he got into a boat and crossed over and came to his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And at once, some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Well, then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And he departed and arose, or I'm sorry, arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitudes saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, in this room we come in various states of repair and disrepair. Various states of clarity on who you are. Various degrees of maturity in your, in your word and, and God, I pray today that no matter where we are, you would speak bespoke to each of us in our hearts and our ears and our minds in a way that we would know it's you and that we would respond accordingly. I pray, Lord, your word would burst open and come alive for each of us. Color in the black and white. I pray now, Lord, over these 45 minutes or so, Lord, as we get into your word, that you would teach us, correct us, equip us for every good work. Lord, that you would today challenge us to get up and walk. That you would challenge us to be the people you would call us to be. And if there are any who have yet to say yes to Jesus as their Lord and Savior, Father, let today be the day of their salvation. So have your way now, God, I pray. Work your power in this room. May your Holy Spirit May you immerse me in your spirit that this precious flock would see you, not me. May you come upon me that you would do through me what I cannot humanly do. So, Lord, we commit this time, redeem every second, I pray. Perfect in length and width and depth. Let your word go forth now. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any day, please don't just believe me. Never just assume it's true because I say so. Or for that matter, anyone says so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. We have the account of this story, and we might say we have this account in 3G. It's in three of the four Gospels, each one with a different emphasis. And kind of notice in this text what's missing. If you're familiar with this story, you're familiar with four friends or four guys carrying the cot. You're familiar with Jesus being in the house, the house being full, and the guys not being able to get the guy in. So they have to tear through the roof to let the guy in. And then, of course, Jesus then goes into the situation with, son, your sins are forgiven you. Matthew doesn't spend any time on those things. I think it's interesting. You'll never read in any of the accounts, by the way, any words spoken by the paralytic, or we might say ex-paralytic, 
or that matter, any words spoken by the friends or the men. All we read, by the way, is Jesus laying out for us in Scripture the hearts of these religious leaders and Jesus speaking. That's it. Obviously, in Matthew's situation, the paralytic is almost side note to the major confrontation between these religious leaders and Jesus. And it's a very sad story on their behalf. In Mark's account and in Luke's account, of course, we'll get much more development on those two guys. And what I'm going to try to do is try to take the verses that compare to each of them and develop them since we have simply eight verses here. So we can get, if you will, a full rounded story of all of them as we look at them this way. In our context here, Jesus has shown in Matthew his superiority over sickness at the Mount of Beatitudes. He has shown his authority over uncleanness with the leper. He has shown his power over the wind and waves on the Sea of Galilee through the storm. And if you will, his absolute authority over all of the powers of hell in gatherings, in Gennesaret on the other side. But now Jesus is leaving that place at the behest, if you will, of the Gadarenes who have now seen a tremendous loss at the death of their pigs. Jesus has sent the man who said he would follow him. He has sent him home. The demoniacs that we saw now sent home. And the next time Jesus will be in this area, 4,000 men and their families will be fed. 5,000 prior... That will be in Jewish territory, 4,000 in Gentile territory. Where did the 4,000 men and their families come from? Well, I imagine these two men that were sent away. Matthew, again, is so nonchalant in this situation. No setup. Simply goes right to the confrontation with the religious leaders. But understand, let's put things into perspective. And here are two countertexts, if you will. Mark chapter 2 and Luke chapter 5. And in Matthew 9, 1, again, it says here, so he got into a boat. Remember, the boat was the boat, I imagine, unless it's a fresh one, the one that they thought they were going to die on on the way over. They're leaving now gatherings, the place that was once scary, the place forbidden to Jews, and now they've kind of seen Jesus conquer all the darkness there. And we read they crossed over and came to his own city. What city is his own city? Well, in Mark chapter 2, in our countertext, it tells us that again, Jesus entered Capernaum. After some days. It says then, and it was heard that he was in the house. Verse 2 of that chapter says, Immediately many gathered together, so there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door, which apparently seems to be the worst scene in the house, or it wouldn't be mentioned such. And he preached the word to them. And the Luke text, what we're going to see is something even deeper in regards to it from a spiritual perspective. But don't miss what we read in Mark 2. In Mark 2, what we read is that his city, or his own city, was the city of Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is, if you were to look at the Sea of Galilee, if you will, it's roughly between 10 and 11 o'clock on the Sea of Galilee. It is on the northwest corner. And it is the place that really is not very inhabited, but it is only the only sort of roughly major, if there is such a thing up there, city amongst the place of great country. It's a country area. It's, if you will, sort of the lake district. It's sort of that middle area where you're on the train and everything's green and covered in wild flowers. And occasionally every couple blinks you see a fresh farmhouse. That's kind of the area we're looking at here in Galilee. But what's interesting is of a strange place for somebody to start the revolution to change the world, such a little town, versus when you head into the London of, of, of Israel, which would have been Jerusalem. But he starts in there, but don't miss the fact that Khafer Nahum, Khafer means village. Nahum, like the prophet Nahum, means comfort. And in that sense, I would say this is a terribly appropriate place for Jesus to start his ministry or call his own city, because where Jesus is is certainly a place of comfort. What we read in the Mark text, then, is that Jesus was in not a house, but the, and never miss that definitive article. The definite article says that there is a specific house in Capernaum we should be looking at, or we should understand which house that is. Well, Mark has already developed the fact that Jesus has already been in a specific house in Capernaum, and it was the house of Peter, if you remember, where his mother-in-law was lying sick. Jesus would touch 
her hand, raise her up because she was sick with a high fever, Luke tells us. And she would get up and serve, which was important because by the evening, the entire city had brought every sick and sick person and demoniac to the door. So you could see what happened when Jesus came home. The house became a hospital. So imagine Jesus went there the last time he was there, the whole city showed up to be made well. So that was his last time there. From there, we went and did this crazy storm trip, visited the demoniacs on the other side. And then we're on our way back to a place we might find of great comfort. And so Jesus is head back. But this house now, assumedly Simon Peter's, we read, now the house is packed. And it is so packed that even the cheap seats are sold out. Even the standing room only is sold out. There's no room left. But listen to the text in Luke 5. In Luke 5:17, from a different camera angle, same story, he tells us, it happened on a certain day that as he was teaching, that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. Listen and listen, don't miss this. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Oh, please don't miss that. Heal who? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the epitome and icon of perfect religion. I mean, the people that we would expect when we look at it and say, well, I'll never be as holy and as righteous as that guy. And they prayed that way. I thank you, God, that I'm not like that man, as Jesus tells us the parable of the rich man, or if you will, the Pharisee and the tax collector who both go to pray. The Pharisee vaunting his achievements, his personal dedication, his disciplines, and whereas the other couldn't even raise his head to heaven, but beat upon his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, the sinner that I am. And Jesus, this is God in the flesh speaking, said, by the way, that first guy, you could see God going, that was a great performance, but it really wasn't even for me. But he said, it was the second guy that walked away forgiven. Inner, if you will, interfacing with the living God. So here, set this whole thing up. Jesus is now left. Have you ever had one of those nights where it's been exhausting. You think you're going to die. You've had a full drag-on argument, freaked out, whatever the case is, whatever the thing is in your life, if you will, sort of the emotional Achilles heel. You've had a full-on blowout. And by this point, you're done. You are done, not just with the day. You're ready to call off the year and move to the next one. And we've gone from there. And just to make it worse, you've gone through a night of that, thinking you're totally going to die. You get onto the other side, and there are these crazy possessed guys that show up and you have to deal with that situation and to make things even worse once the guys are totally transformed then if you will the the town kicks you out this just goes from bad to worse to worse and so you've left there now you've had a horrible emotional experience you've had that blowout on the way over you've had this crazy experience with the demoniacs and then you had the people kicking you out and now you're going to head back into town at this point wouldn't you be ready just to go into the middle of the wilderness and just sit with vultures for a couple days and just be quiet and stare but Jesus has a point here and we get into the house and the house is packed. I mean, it is so packed now that we're all just like this. We're kind of, you know, we're there on the train. It's the northern line somewhere near Angel, the station, and, you know, somewhere during rush hour in the morning. And you kind of know you've been waiting or Victoria where you've been waiting now for four or five trains and you finally get in there. And it's like, that, by the way, I'm very blessed to be tall at a point like that because everybody else. And by the way, I'm very careful to try to smell good because y'all are going to be at my armpit. So, you know, I'm kind of standing there like this, and everyone's just kind of crammed in like that. Well, that's the house. And understand, as long as Jesus wants to teach, is as long as that train's going to keep those doors closed. So we're not leaving. But Luke tells us that somewhere in it, from God's perspective, he's looking down and he's going, there is a real need for healing in that room right now. But the people that need to be healed have no clue. And it was the Pharisees and the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law. Now, please understand I'll get a quick history. You, maybe you're familiar with the fact Israel kind of comes into the promised land roughly between 12 and 1400 B.C. And they will be there basically until the, they have a civil war 
uh, after uh, Solomon, King Solomon, David's son. The northern area, by the way, ten tribes will kind of cling together and they will be under Solomon's commander. And ultimately, they will fall in 721, 722 B.C., for what it's worth, by the Assyrian Empire. The south, remaining tribes, that's during the reign of Hezekiah in the south. Uh, there will be basically, there will be the tribe of Judah, there will be the tribe of Benjamin and some renegade Levites who've come because they're Jerusalem's down there. And ultimately, they will be taken captive by Babylon in 586, 587 B.C., and all of them will be deported. There'll be a very small remnant that will remain. And ultimately, in the three campaigns that took the southern tribes, ultimately, they will return back in three different tribes, or three different campaigns, if you will. And the first time they come back, of the over 2 million people that were taken captive, 49,897 people returned with Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple. And his second group then, a second group returns back, <coughs> excuse me, led by Ezra. Uh, and Ezra will go to rebuild the people because they've gotten lazy. And then finally, Nehemiah will return in a third group around roughly 445 B.C. to then go and rebuild the wall that surrounds Jerusalem. Now, forgive me if you, if, for whatever that's worth for the history, but please understand the pertinence of it. During that time, I mean, before that we had kings. I mean, the northern area had 20 kings. The southern area had 19 kings. And in all of that, now who, who rules this? Who rules? Now we've got all these people who have returned. Who rules this? Well, we kind of look around and we realize we really don't have anyone we look at as a king. So the next guy, if you will, in the pecking order would be the high priest, the Kohen Gadol. Well, who is the Kohen Gadol? Who is the high priest? Well, you have to go back to the family and you have a bunch of guys that come from the family of the priests, and you realize there's a guy from the lineage or a family that's from the direct lineage of the high priest during David's day. So they kind of look and they go, well, I mean, what makes one guy in a pole position better than another? And they look, and the, the priest during that time was a guy named Zadok. So the people that came from him were called Zadokites or Zadokians, and it's where we get the word Sadducee from. So the Sadducees were, think about it, you were a bunch of people, let's just say your name was you know, let's see, Windsor. And you had all come back from living somewhere else in the world, be that Africa or Asia or wherever, and you came back, but coincidentally your names were Windsor by surname. And so when you came here one day, there was a meeting and they said, well, everyone with the surname Windsor gets a palace. You didn't do anything to deserve it. You just kind of woke up one day and said, by the way, now you get a palace. That's kind of the idea here. So what you have are a group of people that are, in essence, the leaders of the religious party of the day, and they had no qualifications other than this. They happened to have a surname that was coincidentally, in this case, Cohen. Or in this case, from Zadok. So when you have a bunch of guys that were really rich, instantly, with no genuine care for God. So what you have then a group of people, there's always going to be a counter movement to that. And some people had had enough. They were really tired of watching this brassy, you know, Armani-wearing, TV-produced, plastic-haired, you know, big thing that had nothing to do with God and everything to do with performance. And finally, the group said, we're going to separate. And the Hebrew word for separates the word perash, from which we get the word Pharisee. They were the counter-movement, if you will. They were the back-to-the-Bible movement originally during their time. But the problem is the pendulum never stops in the middle. So what happens is they didn't just swing back from this sort of liberal, crazy idea. They swung way into hardcore legalism, and they took every tradition they could get their hands on. And they got this sort of sadomasochistic relationship with a group of guys that were called scribes. And they were the ones who kind of wrote commentary on Scripture, for which then the Pharisees had to obey. So what you have on one side are these hardcore legalists, and on the other side, these hardcore liberals. Nobody really looking for a genuine relationship with God. These guys are just happy they have a temple because they're rich landowners. And these guys are happy that they have a law, so they have something that defines them there. That's the world that Jesus steps into. So please understand, in that room right now, there were a group of people who are trying to keep God. And please, please hear me. Here's going to be the difference. They're trying to keep God away. Every other religion in the world tries to keep your God away, if you think about it. <clears throat> they're, ven they're vengeful, they're angry, they're vindictive. <clears throat> so what you do is if you do all of these things, maybe they won't visit, and that's a good day. And throughout the world, you'll visit places where people do the most heinous things to themselves because they're so afraid that if they don't, they're going to get blasted, even that day. <clears throat> so understand, comparing that concept to God who's walking among men in the flesh in Jesus 
Can you imagine? Jesus came to be with man, to love him. I don't worship God to make him happy. I don't worship God to keep him away. I worship God because he's near and he loves me and because he's good. So please hear me. In that room, there were a group of guys and they are trying so hard. But they're trying so hard to keep God away. Because they don't want his wrath. But they don't know his love. And God looking from heaven in this first verse as he sets us up. It moves quicker, by the way. But he sets us up and he looks and he goes, these guys need healing. They've been through the politics. They've been through the personal issues between people. They've seen the personal selfish ambitions. They've watched people vaunt themselves and parade themselves. And they're sick to the hilt. But they're trying so hard. But they're trying so hard in the wrong place. And God says, I really want to heal you today. Unfortunately, that's not what they're there for. What they're there for, to be honest, is to go and find a fault with Jesus. They are looking to find a fault. They are scrutinizing every comma. They are challenging every sort of precept. They're looking for any crack in the doctrine they can, anything that they think smells like blasphemy, anything that seems not just questionable to the tradition, but somehow something they can nail him on to get this guy out of the place because he's really ruffling feathers. That's a terrible place for this to be. And maybe that's you today. I don't know how you came in here, but you could come in here very damaged and not even know it. You could come in damaged because someone's lied to you. You could come in damaged because you've been part of a politic or because you've seen something or you've experienced something that's been really against the character and nature of Jesus Christ. And what happens is you come in and what happens is you're like, oh, like anything's really going to happen. I'll pay my dues so that God doesn't punish me. Maybe I'll have a better day from it. Just make it quick. And we come in and, and I'm here to let you know my God wants to heal you today. And the power of Christ is present to heal you. But he wants you to come in not to find flaw. But rather to come and find forgiveness. And that's what we're going to see here. So verse 2. Then behold, according to our text here in Matthew, it says, they, and though that's never defined in Matthew, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. <clears throat> Here's a countertext in Mark. Mark 2, 3 says, Then they came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men, literally just four. And when they could not come near him, because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. Then behold, men brought on a bed. This is the Luke 5.18 text. Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring and lay before him, before Jesus, that is. And when they could not find out how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling in the midst before Jesus. Now, let's start playing out our scene here. Because it really gets kind of fun, funky, and funny, to be honest. I mean, what we have here, first of all, is we have a guy who's paralyzed. That's pretty evident. Now, the word paralytikos is the word in the, in the Greek, and it simply it means somebody who obviously doesn't have control. Does that mean he can't use his legs? Does that mean, is he a, a paraplegic? Is it a quadriplegic? We don't know. Interestingly enough, by the way, we never hear him speak in any of the accounts. We do know that he's going to be transformed here. And interestingly enough, it won't even be his own faith that will be the, if you will, sort of the avenue that Christ uses. But we do know that he's a mess. Regardless of the case, in the Middle East, even often to this day, men are sent to beg, and that's going to be how they're going to make their living. They're sitting on a cot, by the way, and when a guy is, has to go to the toilet, I'm just trying to develop it for care here, where do you go? Well, you can't go anywhere, so you go right where you're at. Which means that the cot that you're lying on becomes a cesspool. It becomes a stinky, rotten, fly-infested, dangerous, filthy, germ-infested place for which you cannot leave. In the view of the Middle East, 
2,000 years ago, the idea that there was a weight of the world, but there is something that you could do that is so wrong that God will punish you. And normally they viewed illness as a punishment from God, that in such a case, that something had happened. So now, if you will, gravity has tripled. It's gotten to this place where you're not getting up, and that happens to be the vengeance and wrath of God. So most people, by the way, when they look and they see somebody like this, they naturally assume this was an, a, a punitive act of God. But they'll walk by and they're required to do what's called mitzvah, and that means good deeds, and so they'll still toss a coin in the coffer for their own personal conscience. But what we read, by the way, is that though that is one of the characters in this, we also read about another group of people, and that is four guys, four men. It's in the masculine, so it seems to be men. But please hear this. Nowhere in this scripture do we read that they say anything either. But we also don't read at least in the text, that they have any previous relationship with this guy. Now, they could. They could be his long-lost friends. They could be his brothers. We don't read. They could be, and it's just because the text doesn't make clear, they could have been four guys so excited about what Jesus did, they just kind of looked and they were walking and they're like, hey, there's a paralyzed guy. Let's just grab him and take him to Jesus. We don't know. But get the idea here. That poor guy, he's not going anywhere without somebody taking him, but if they're taking him, he really can't get out. There's nothing he can do to leave. So imagine these four guys, whoever they are, whether they were, if you will, long friends or not, one thing's for sure, they certainly are friends. And I'm learning something because I, I want to associate more with these friends than I want to with the paralyzed guy. I certainly want to associate more with the friends or these guys than I do the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders that are obviously in the wrong place, the worst place in this story. And I look at this and I realize whether they were, though the Bible doesn't call them friends, they certainly acted like them. And I'm looking at this and God speaks to my heart and he says, listen, friends, don't make friends feel better about their sin. Friends... Take friends to Jesus. Friends, don't pretend that the problem isn't there. Friends, take friends to Jesus. Friends, don't dodge the issues to keep peace. Friends, take friends to Jesus. Friends, don't avoid the truth to not offend someone. Friends, take friends to Jesus. Friends, don't just assume one day they'll roll over and find themselves at the feet of Jesus. Friends, take friends to Jesus. Friends, don't shut up about Jesus because we're feared that they lose a friend, friends are so concerned that they may lose their friend forever that they can't help but take them to Jesus. And if I look at it from an eternal perspective, I can't dance around this. When we say, well, I could lose my friend, and I'd say, if we don't tell them about the most important thing in our lives, how in the world am I being a friend to them? Can I imagine standing before the Lord and having them stand before him and have them look at me like you could have told me? Why didn't you? You say, I was afraid you'd be angry. And you think, oh, I'm angry now. I'm disappointed now. It's like, yeah, but I know. But if I really want to bring up Jesus, I could lose them. What does that say? That you don't have them now anyways. That's the truth. Now, I'm not telling you that you have to come at them in such a way that you're kind of. But see, now, I don't even want to apologize for this. Some of you are like, well, they don't come in Bible bash. I might say, listen, come at them with the power of the Spirit. And that may have a lot of Scripture. I'm so tired of the church backpedaling on what he calls us to do. Love people enough to tell them. When someone says, why are you the way you are? Don't just tell them you're a nice person. Tell them the truth. We are not nice people. We're horrible jerks saved by Jesus who have been transformed. And without him, we would be so nasty, they wouldn't be asking us anything except, how do I get away from you? And these guys, I learned so much from them. Because somewhere down the line, whatever their relationship was before that, play, play this thing out for a second when we, get, when we start developing the rest of this where the confrontation happens. So they have to pick up this guy. Now I remind you, so that's four of us. So let's say that's you and me. And while we're at it, we'll take Daniel as well and we'll take Jukes, the four of us. And we see somebody, and they're laying there paralyzed. We're going to say that's going to be Splorin, because we don't want to embarrass Lauren. So, so Splorin and Anthony is, um, is laying there paralyzed, and we're looking, and, and we don't know whether she can speak or not. But one thing's for sure, more than likely, she probably doesn't smell very good. 
And we kind of look, and we kind of look at each other and go, what do you think, guys? What do you think? Should we do this? Let's get her to Jesus. Let's do it. Now, whether she wants to go or not, once we grab the cot, she's going. Now, imagine the situation. Now, that may not be the way that we'll play it up, but we'll try to make it more to where we are today. But figure this for a moment. So we're walking. Now, we don't know how far it is. We don't read where she's placed. We don't read that she was placed. We just read that she was paralyzed and she was on a cot. That's clear. So we start going. Chicks goes, well, I, you know, I happen to know where Jesus is. Just look for the place. You know, I, she's bound to be at Peter's house. Oh, yeah, he's going to be at Peter's house. Of course he is. He's back. We heard that he, you know, he took the, the, the boat back, and here he is. All right, so we go. You ready? Grab his side, grab his side. You guys take the front. Here we go. You know, and I was like, actually, we'll take the front because the wind's blowing that way. You know, and so we're going, you know, we're kind of holding our breath, and we're play, praying against our gag reflex, and we're thankful we're outside. And we're just kind of being careful. Okay, you guys, make sure we're holding it steady, right? Because, I mean, one guy trips, poor Lawrence, Florence, falling out. But then we get there, and we start hearing all this noise as we kind of round the corner, and we start hearing this crowd, and we look, and we go, oh, my goodness, it's spilling out of the house. The cue to see Jesus now, it's just unbelievable. Look at this. And so, now, which one of us thinks, all right, that's good enough? Well, we tried. I'll tell you what. Why don't we just leave Splorin here? Jesus is bound to leave the house sooner or later. We've done more than most people. Isn't that often what we can do? We're kind of most of the way there and something goes, oh, we have to, oh, you know, I'm kind of getting off here, but we're really connecting and I'm really sharing Jesus with you. Uh, Well, maybe someone else will finish the job versus, well, maybe I might have to go three more stops on a warm train, then get off, take the three stops back to where I was. And that's like that. Imagine that's inconvenience. That's our first world problem. Not in this case. We're smelling poopy exploring. So we kind of go, and we're carrying, and we get to that point. And we realize, well, we're going to have to do something about it. If we're really going to, if we are dedicated to getting her in to see Jesus, it's going to start costing us now more than this. Now, again, everyone has their pet peeves. I know we all have them, whatever they are. But I got to tell you, my worst pet peeve and at least this way, I know you won't play a practical joke on this one, and that's animal fouling. I don't know what it is about. It's like, look, at, I, I love people with animals. I think it's really sweet. But if you're going to have your animal poop on the road, pick it up, please, because I don't want to take it with me. And, and it's like, and, and because maybe I'm kind of keen to smell for whatever reason, uh, you know, it's like, and the other day I was kind of talking to someone and I was praying, and all of a sudden, I, and, and I looked down and I'm like, oh, this is, and I was on my way into a train. And I'm like, this is a really bad thing. But I was praying through this whole story, and I think, this is nothing compared to picking up a person stewing in their own human waste. So we get there. Now, here's the thing. At this point, we have to go, and we have to go up a level. It isn't like we go on the roof and try to figure it out. It says, it looks like we have a plan. So we kind of congregate. You know, Chooks is there, Daniel's there, and he starts to talk, and he's like, I've got an idea. Let's get Splorin up on the roof and let's just drop her through the roof. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Because this is going to require more than us just going, poof, walla, walla, get up. There's no lift. There's an outside ladder made of bamboo. Thick bamboo. That's nice. So how in the world do we get her up the ladder? We're going to have to tie her down. Have you thought that through? What do we have to tie her down with? Our sashes, it's the only thing we really have. It isn't like guys walk around with rope. It isn't like we're in the Wild West here. So what do we have with those things that kind of tie our moo-moos down? So now think about it. That means we have to go and we kind of, what, do we draw straws? Do we do Rochambeau? How do we pick which ones there are? Chances are we'll use them all. Or maybe not. So maybe we kind of look and let's say, all right, well, all right, Cheeks and I, we're going to go, all right, you guys, we'll give up our sashes for this. I mean, you guys don't have to yet. So what do we do? We're going to tie Splorin down because we have to go and walk up this ladder with this. Now, who wants to be at the bottom of that ladder? What's going to come off of that cot when you start turning that thing vertical? Anyone think that through? And I'm not trying to be gross. I'm just trying to be real. Think of the sacrifice here. When we're kind of, oh, Lord, Lord, you know, just kind of making sure nothing. Oh, it touched me. It touched my arm, you know. And we're getting up there because this is a real person on this thing. And we care more about that person than the smell in my hand. Then the inconvenience of this moment. Two guys are going to have to pull up. Two of us are going to have to push up. And we finally get Lauren at the top. But we know it's going to cost us more than that. 
Because the only way we're going to have to get through it is we're going to have to go through this roof. And we're aware of the fact that we're going to go through the roof. We're going to have to pay for it. How much do we love someone enough to say, it's worth it? I'm going to tear through this roof. This church has a leaky roof. Praise God we don't own it. Uh, it's owned by the Church of England, and I think it's forty grand to repair their little leak. Put that into perspective. We're not tearing through a house, a giant thing like this. We're tearing through something small, but put it into perspective. What do you, how much do you think that is? What if it were four grand? Which one of us wants to cough that up? The question is, is flooring worth it? Is she worth it for that? So what do we do? We get her up to the top, and if you've seen like the, the Matthew Bourne movies or whatever, or, you know, or Jason Bourne movies, uh, you know, or whatever, you kind of you know there's like sort of a sea or it's actually a road of roofs. And the idea is you go from one roof to the next roof to the next roof. So whatever roof we get up on, we can walk from roof to roof. Though the roofs are rough cut timber, covered in straw and mud, covered in straw and mud, covered in straw and mud. And on the front portion of that, the front portion of the house, it's tiled because that's the area. What's, what's the good thing about tile? It cools in the evening. So you can rest on that tile and it's, it's a way of sort of a cooling chamber. It's the, if you will, it's the balcony. We're going through, I mean, we don't just go through the rough part. We go through the part where we're going to have to replace the tile, too. So, in other words, we're going through the most expensive part of the roof. Why are we there? Because that's probably where, we, where Jesus is. I mean, you know, well, we'll just drop him in the back. We'll drop her in the back. No, no, no. We're going to go to wherever Jesus is. So, while this whole scene is happening, so get this, these guys, but here's the deal. Now, how do we let her down? Well, two of us have bad sashes, but guess what, boys? You're jumping in with us. So we probably would more than likely what we have to do, and we're just talking about two poles that are connected, if you will, by other pieces of bamboo and a piece of canvas on it, like a rough, you know, sort of like a sackcloth. So what happens is now all four of us have to take those sashes, tie them to the ends, eat or eat her, and trying to get her down evenly. But how much of the hole do you have to do? Do we cut a hole and then start dropping her vertically? Or do we actually get something, we're talking about two meters wide, sort of the size of a grave and lower her? Think about that. But here's the other part about it. How much of that do you want to dig through before you start realizing we just may join her on the way down if we pull too much out? Think of the risk in this. Can I just say you're worth it? You're worth it. You're worth it if that's what it takes to get you to Jesus. You're worth it because... In the end of it all, all those other things can be replaced, but you're not going to get another splorin. You get one, and there it is. There she is. And these guys do all of that, but here's the great part. While all of this is happening on the outside, Jesus is teaching this crammed house, and in this crammed house, there's a group of people listening to Jesus to find fault. And they're just going, oh, there he goes on and on and on. Do you know how long a traditional Middle Eastern message goes? Three and a half hours. Now, granted, there are older ones. We know about Paul when he's in Troas. He does an all-nighter. But get the idea here that these guys... Now, while this is happening, Jesus knows in that room that somebody else needs to be healed, but they're not going to be willing. And Jesus has the perfect opportunity. But imagine what it would be like. We're in a tiny little space. Chances are we're in a space basically from those two pillars to these two pillars square. That's about the size of a large room. And if it really is the house, by the way, that they have right now in Capernaum that we visited, more than likely it's going to be basically about a third, you know, two thirds of that size. And imagine Jesus is teaching and all of a sudden stuff starts falling on our heads. Maybe you hear a little, right, the sort of feet that are up there. My office, by the way, where I sit at my house uh, the, the roof above it, by the way, it's thin and it's flat and squirrels dance on it, basically. Uh, and anytime I open up my scripture, it's like... And that's like something little. I can't imagine four guys carrying splorin and they're like, like all the noise and Jesus is talking over it. Well, while that's happening, these Pharisees who have made sure that everything about them is clean are getting dusted. Think that through. Pieces are falling. Sooner or later, we have to start, you know, we're trying to pay attention, but that's happening. And you know how that is. We have those studies where something happens and everyone's like kind of going like this, but they're really, you know, trying to look like, you know, and it's like they're, you know, they're kind of trying not to look up, but they are. And sooner or later, it's like big chunks are starting to fall now. Pieces of tile are starting to fall. How do you think Peter's reacting to this? Do you think Peter's like, are you kidding me? This house is already crammed. You're breaking my water pots. And look at what you're doing now. But, you know, or is Peter in a place right now where he's fearful to complain because he knows that Jesus would be much happier about the person than the roof? 
Do you pray for no rain? And as Lawrence, I mean, imagine, here we are in the roof, you know, all of a sudden you start seeing hands finally peek through, a finger gets through the roof, you know, we're kind of seeing a finger wiggle and we're like, what in the world? We don't read that they came with tools. We don't read that this was a pre-planned objective. Somewhere down the line, they're pulling up tiles and then they're digging through with their hands, if you will, digging through the mud, pulling up pieces of straw, trying to move pieces of timber, and finally getting a space big enough one way or the other, and hands are starting to pick through. And imagine we kind of look up and then there's a face, you know, looking down on, hey, maybe that's enough space. No, no, let's go bigger. I don't know. And everyone's kind of looking at this point. And you could see Jesus in this going, this is going to be a much better lesson. This is so good. And all of a sudden, comes stinky exploring. Poopy splorin. Stinky poop infested splorin. In a tight room that's now crammed full of people. Nowhere to escape. That good seat became the worst seat. And they let him down, her down, this is him, down in front of Jesus. How do you do that in a house full of people? Does that sit on your lap now? Do you hold out your arms? But now Jesus wants to deal with the real problem. So notice back in our text, and now we're, at verse, we're in the middle of verse 2. Don't worry, it picks up. When Jesus, notice it says, saw their faith. It isn't like Jesus was even fishing for faith in the paralytic. These people so dedicated to get him to Jesus. Jesus says, that's all the faith I'm looking for. When he saw their faith, he's going to turn to the paralytic. And the first thing he says to them, you guys, please hear this, is tarsejo. Tarsejo means have courage. Don't be so afraid. Be brave. Or we see it here as cheer up. Be of good cheer. What could he possibly be afraid of? Well, how long would it take under that circumstance for you to be convinced you have done something wrong to earn this? And if that's the case, and you're standing before, and now, sorry, you're laying before a prophet, couldn't he just tell everyone, make you an object lesson, and say, you know, this is what happens when you do that. People don't want to come to church because they're afraid of that. They're afraid they're like, oh, God's going to nail me on that. The guy at the front's going to just start telling everyone what they're doing wrong. And Jesus looks, and the, and the first thing he says, by the way, and I do like this, by the way, the one thing he says before that, forgive me, I should say this first, is son. And now, now there are words for specifically for son, and like, for instance, but the word here is the word technon. In other words, it's like, little child, my child, don't be afraid. Your sins are forgiven you. Which, of course, is really going to make trouble here. But I'd like you to consider something. Jesus wants to teach us in this room right now. And he wants us to hear him in this. When they were on that boat heading in the opposite direction to head to the Gadarenes, we read a wind storm arose quickly. Why is that important? Because the wind showed us the source of the storm. Uh, The moon makes tides, but it's the wind that makes storms. Why is that important? Because when Jesus stands up, he rebukes the wind. I'd like you to realize, the wind may not have been the biggest threat to them. The water was. The waves were. The water was piling into the boat. The boat was starting to sink. And then they freak out and say, don't you care, we're perishing. But please understand... Though the waves were what they saw that was going to take them down, it was the wind that was the cause. It was the waves that were, the, if you will, the result. And Jesus doesn't just deal with the symptoms. He goes to the cause to bring cure. This doesn't cure. This is therapy. This is where cure takes place. This is where real healing takes place. This will get drunk to be numb and forget. This will go from sex to sex. We'll go from, from relationship to relationship. We'll go from thing to thing. Because somehow and if it numbs me enough, I will lose the symptom and I'll stop freaking out over whatever. And maybe if I can spend enough time on this, I will forget about the cause. Well, we don't even know what the cause is, but Jesus does. 
And we're like, just make me numb. But Jesus doesn't just play therapy games with us. He goes to the cause so we can be cured. And the reason I say that is Jesus could have just, and that, and the interesting about this, Jesus could have said, well, he could have rebuked, uh, uh, I rebuke that tear in your spinal column. I rebuke that problem in your brain from that head injury. I rebuke that, that bacteria that is eaten away somewhere at that place in between, as if that were the real cause of this. But Jesus knew the real cause was sin. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at this, and I'm seeing this from an entirely different perspective. I mean, I'm not saying that what this is, in essence, is God, if you will, punishing the man prior. The bottom line is, let's face it, you jump in front of a bus, don't blame God. You jump off of a building, don't blame God for gravity. You knew what was there before you jumped. But in this somewhere down the line, please understand, what is it like to be overwhelmed by sin? Do you know what it's like? It's like being paralyzed. But it's more than just like being paralyzed. You don't have a walk like you could. You can't just get up and do what you really want to anymore. You are a slave to this. But you know what happens instead? You stew in your own waste. And that's what happens when sin gets on top of you. When sin gets on top of you, all you are, all we become are stinky people that other people will avoid. But Jesus wants to not just make you less stinky. Jesus wants to cure the cause. And please hear me in that. Today, wherever you're at, if there be anything in your life that, the God, that God wants to deal with, and he goes, look it, I want to get to this cause. And if you're willing to let me, because the power of God is here to heal. And please understand, we're not just talking about, look, you may have the flu and, and you, or you have cancer. And, and if you just want to pray this prayer, maybe you won't have cancer anymore because the issue is so much bigger than that. You can have cancer and have a good walk with Christ. But you can't have sin on top of you and have a good walk with Christ. And please hear me in this. The Lord today is saying, I want to do something with you. I want to transform you. But I'm going to tell you that you need to know this, that I am here to lift this off of you and get this off of you. But we're going to need to deal with the sin issue if that's going to happen. So he turns and says, son, don't be afraid. Your sins are forgiven you. And at once, verse 3, it says, the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. In Luke 5.21, it'll say the Pharisees reason among themselves or within themselves, and they say, who can speak, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus then will, will address it in verse 4 when he says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, I do, knowing their thoughts said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Why are you thinking this? Why are you trying to find fault when I'm trying to heal? Who can forgive sins but God alone? You're so close. It says, listen, what is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, get up and walk? Anyone can say, hey, your sins are forgiven you. How do you know? But notice it says in verse 6, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, now get up, arise and take up your bed and go home. Now look at this for a second, because in this, Jesus is looking, he's going, no, I don't know what you guys are thinking. He's talking to the religious leaders, the ones that he wants to heal at this moment, but are so trapped in their bitterness and their anger and their cynicism and their skepticism that they can't see the love of God in this. And he's trying to get them and he's going, look it, you've got to let that go. It's on top of you, but the worst part is you're grabbing it and holding it there. And he's saying, listen, well, yeah, it's easy for anyone to say your sins are forgiven and wave and throw some holy water on you. But he goes, look it, you need to know that what really, what really happens, what really happens when when sin is forgiven as you get up. That's what happens. Now the word forgive is the word afiemi in the Greek. And it literally means to cast off and abandon. Get the idea of that. Something is on top of you. You've got an elephant stepping on you. And somebody just picks it up and throws it away. Who's strong enough to do that? Only my God can do that. That's why who can forgive sins but God alone? But you go, but wait a minute. It says here, Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. And there are all kinds of denominations that have taken it and say, well, then let's build a box so you can talk to me. Because I'm a man. The problem is, don't miss this. It says here, the Son of Man. Do you see that definite article? It's not a Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, but the Son of Man. Now, our last diversion, and we're going to close this thing up. Listen. The term the Son of Man is listed 88 times in Scripture. Only five of them in the Old Testament. Of the five, three of them are in Psalms. Psalm 8.4, Psalm 
Psalm 80, verse 11, and Psalm 144, verse 3. And Psalm 8, 4, it's quoted, by the way, as well in Hebrews 2, 6. It's the one that says, what is the Son of Man that you are mindful of him? The Son of Man that you give him any attention. And it says then, you made him a little lower than the angels, but crowned him in glory and honor. For which, by the way, directly addresses Jesus, who, though given greater authority, though being infinite, took on the position of someone lesser than the angels to redeem us. In Psalm 80, verse 11, it speaks of the restorer of the broken vineyard of Jerusalem. In Psalm 144, verse 3, it's the perfect king. The other two places are Isaiah 56, 2, where he is the keeper of the house of prayer. And then there's one last place in the Old Testament that speaks of the Son of Man. And it is in Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, understand, Daniel gets a vision. Daniel, by the way, remember those three exploits that took the south captive? He was the first of them. The first group, by the way, 10,000 were taken captive. The choicest of men. The problem is they were castrated and made eunuchs in the king's palace. You could go, yay, I'm the best of the best. You probably won't be celebrating for long. But while Daniel's there in the palace, he gets a vision. And in chapter 7, the vision is he sees four beasts. The first, a lion with eagle's wings, by the way, that was given a man's heart, stood up on two legs. The second was a bear with three ribs in its teeth. The third was a leopard with four bird wings. And the fourth was so indescribable, he just simply said, dreadful, terrible, and exceedingly strong iron-toothed beast. Ultimately, in the immediate, he speaks of those four things. As the four kingdoms, the one he was in, Babylon, will be replaced by the Medo-Persians, that will be replaced by the Greeks, and ultimately that of the Roman Empire. But after that particular text, when he speaks of that, he says this as he sees these beasts. In verse 13 of chapter 7 of Daniel, it says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds in heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is one which shall not be destroyed. When he speaks about this, one like the Son of Man, it is one who is infinite from infinite past with an infinite kingdom to which all will serve. By verse 21 it says, by the way, or verse 22, that the Ancient of Days came and judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High till the time of the saints to possess the kingdom. And they'll do that by serving this one like the Son of Man. When Matthew addresses, by the way, of all the, because the idea is that he's going to be king, this the Son of Man, there's no uh, book in the New Testament that has more verses related to the Son of Man than Matthew. 30 of the 88 verses come from here. But here's a couple just to give you an idea. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Matthew 12, verse 8. When Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi, he says, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? In Matthew 16, 27, The Son of Man will come in his glory of his Father with his angels, and he will reward each one according to their works. Matthew 25, 31 says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory of his holy angels, he will sit on the throne of his glory. You get the idea that the Son of Man is going to be a king in charge. And that's, of course, what Matthew would ex- we'd expect from him. Matthew 26:64 says, Nevertheless, Jesus said, As you've said, nevertheless, as I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming in the clouds of heaven. Mark, by the way, says it only 30, 13 of 88 times. And he'll say there in Mark 10:45 that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. In Luke 9:56, it'll say the Son of Man didn't come to destroy men's lives to save them. In Luke 19, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 10, it says the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Matthew tells us that the Son of Man will be king over all kings. Mark tells us that he came to serve. Luke says that he came to save. John, by the way, tells us that it is the Son of Man for which even Nathaniel would see the angels coming and ascending and descending on. It is right before John 3.16 that we read in 3.14 that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. The Son of Man. Not a Son of Man. The Son of Man. 
In John 5.27, it says that he's been given authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. In Acts, there's only mentioned once, 7.56, when Stephen's being stoned and he says, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Hebrews mentions it once with quoting Psalm 8.6, or 8.4, I'm sorry, and then it ends with two verses in Revelation. Revelation 1.13, where we read, As John sees one walking around the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, girded about his chest with a golden band, in Revelation 14:14, 14, 14, where it says that upon a white cloud one sat, like the Son of Man, having on his head the golden crown, a golden crown in his hand, a sharp sickle. From the beginning to the end of it, it is the King of Kings, the servant of servants. It is the one who came to seek, to serve, to save, and he is above all things. And the reason I say that is when Jesus says that you may know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins, he is speaking of himself exclusively. And he has the power to forgive sins. He has the power today in this room to lift off of you everything that's on top of you. So that you may know that this is the case. He says, what you're watching physically is what I want to do with you spiritually. That guy can't get up. Can't get up. That person's helpless. That person is at this point, unless I do something, is going to remain this way for the rest of their life. But at my moment here, He's going to get up and never be the same. And I want that of you. I want you today to be able to get up and walk with Christ. So, get up. Go to your house. So he arose and went to his house immediately, by the way, says Mark and Luke. The people respond by freaking out. They marvel, glorify God. They say to themselves, according to Matthew, or to Mark, they say, we've never seen anything like this. And in Luke, they say, we have seen strange things today. So listen, as we bring this to close, Jesus didn't demand, if you've ever had a problem where you've broken something, you know that your muscles atrophy, and then they lose their memory. Your muscles have memory. You're aware of that, right? That's how you can get a fork in your mouth without poking you in the eye. What happens is that your muscles know where to go with it. If you don't think so, how often do your fingers type or text faster than you're thinking? You're not staring at everything. Your fingers know where to go. So what happens after a while? Your muscles atrophy. They lose their memory, by the way. And if you were just to go and have that thing healed, you know what happens. It's months and months and months of therapy. Getting those muscles back to where they need to be. Getting that memory back to where it needs to be. So why doesn't Jesus need to do that? Because the one who flung the stars into space and said, Light be, is the same one who spoke then to this person and says, Now be free. And I'm here to say, first of all, if you're like that man carried by a cot today, and I don't know how they got you in here. Maybe you're the kind of person who's like, I don't know if I really want to go. And you're like, come on. And you just wrap your arm around. You're going to come. I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to go to your house. Maybe one's like, look at meet me. At, no, no, no. I'm going to your house and I'm picking you up. And we're going to take the train together. Why? Because I'm getting you in whatever way I need to. I'm going to get you where you need to be. I'm going to get you to Jesus. When you get there, maybe that's you today and you feel like the world's on top of you. You can't get up. You really don't have a walk. You're trying. But it's on top of you. And you know what it's like when it's on top of you because at this point you are helpless. I'm here to tell you that Jesus wants to get to the cause of it. He wants to get to the source of it today in this room. And He wants you to be able to get here and walk out of this place and head home in such a way that you're different than you've been. Say, get up now. Jesus says, you want to see what that looks like to me? It looks like this guy getting up and walking though we've never been able to here since we've seen him. He says, now I want to deal with whatever's going on inside your heart. Is it rebellion? Is it self-reliance? Is it pride? I mean, look at pride can be that you think you're you think you're awesome. Pride can be that you just think you're awful. You're just consumed with yourself. It's still pride. It's like I want to take that and I want to do more than just deal with the symptoms. I want to go and I want to rip that off of you and abandon it so you can get up here and walk and walk like you've never walked. Walk in a way that you're free and it's like there's no gravity left. You're just going. Thank you. God, and that's what he wants today for every one of you here. Me too, by the way. And the power of Jesus is here to do that.
Not because I'm here and not because we're in this building, but because his word's gone forth and because we're two or more gathered in his name, there he is in our midst. And I'm here. Is there anyone else gathered in Jesus' name? Okay, good. We're safe. There we go. So, I mean, either way, and he lives inside of me, so he's going to be here whether you're here or not. The question is, are you going to walk out like that Pharisee angry, that scribe because you've been offended or in some way you're going, you know what, I don't know about this thing. Or are you going to say yes to the one who can tell you, listen, get up and walk. I want to get that off of you forever. And how do I know we can do that? Because there's somebody that actually was even in worse shape than a guy who was here laying paralyzed. The only thing worse than being paralyzed is being dead. But my God so loved me, his son came to this earth. And he walked and he took my sins, the weight of your sins and my sins, and he put them upon his shoulders. You want to talk about weight. When we think about great weights in the Middle East, we take this giant stone and we put it upon olives and it crushes them. It presses them until the blood of the olives comes out. That's olive oil. And at the place where they had that press was a place that's called the olive press, or as we know it, Gethsemane. It's just the Hebrew word for olive press. And there at the olive press, at Gethsemane, Jesus fell to his knees and sweat like drops of blood. Do you get why? Because the weight of your sin and my sin was placed upon him. But he didn't stop there. He took it to the cross so it could be left there. So it could be paid in full. And then rose again on the third day, just like he promised. And my question to you today is this. What's it going to do for you now? Are you willing to take that now and let him rip off of you the madness that's on top of you? Rip off of you the weakness that you're claiming that you're clinging to right now. You want to say, Lord, if this is really what you want to do, I, I, I say, please, get it off of me. I don't want to get up and walk out of here. But that's your choice. But Jesus paid the price on the cross and rose again. You still have a choice. It's like he wrote you a check, but you get to choose to cash it. The question is, will you say yes? Pray with me, would you please? Lord, I want to thank you for this text. I want to thank you for the depth of it. I want to thank you for how you've given us such richness in these three texts. I want to thank you, Jesus, that you as the Son of Man came and you came to seek and to save that which was lost. You came not to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. Thank you for doing that. Thank you that you will sit on the throne. And it won't be about whether we've performed perfectly, but it'll be about whether we've accepted the gift you've extended to us at the cross. And I thank you that that's what we have to choose right now. And Lord, I know right now we would we, we want to cling to things. We want to cling to things that become our identity, like the demoniac. We want to cling to things that say, well, this is just... This is just who I am. And you just got to deal with this is who I am. But, but Lord, I want you to break through all of that right now. Don't let there be a single scribe in this room or a Pharisee in this room that is so busy clinging to who they were, to who they are in, these, in the robes of their own madness, that somewhere they won't let you heal them today. God, please let there be healing in this room today. And please, God, let it be for every one of us. Give us a walk we've never had, better than we've ever could imagine. And then once you cause us to get up and walk, then make us cot carriers for the next person that would love people enough to say, if I could just get you to Jesus, he would fix you. So here in this room right now, at the sound of this voice, if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus, or maybe today you just want to renew your vows to him, you just want to say, Lord, okay, if this really is the offer you're offering me, then I say yes above all my skepticism and cynicism, all of the politics I've experienced, all of the weird people that I've had to, to, to endeavor through, through the sea of crazy things I've, been, I've seen around. But Jesus, if this is what you really want, I want to say yes to this today. And if that's you today, I'm just going to pray this prayer. And please just pray along with me today. I don't want you just to listen, but pray along with me. And here it is. God in heaven, I need you. God in heaven, things are on top of me. My sin is on top of me. My guilt is on top of me. But God, today, I want it off of me for good. I want every symptom that comes from it off of me for good. Not just to get rid of the symptoms, but God, that you would cure me of that which is taking me down. I want to have a walk with you. I want to be able to be vibrant in you. 
And God, I just, I want to risk it and say, yes, please, invade, transform, heal me. God, bid me to, to get up off of my stewing mess, off of my filth and my madness. Cause me to get up from that today to walk out glorifying you like I should. So, Lord, I hand you these things today. And, Lord, I just pray right now, as you've promised, now do your end of the bargain. I'm just going to say, God, I'm yours. I'm yours now, Lord. And as I'm yours, Lord, overcome every pharisaical, scribal thing in my head, Lord, like these guys in here. Overcome all of that and make me a cot carrier. Make me a person, God, who could say I was at a place where I was so overwhelmed, I was so overcome, but now I'm free. I do believe, Jesus, that you died on the cross for me. I do believe you died for my sins, and I do believe you rose again to give me new life. So in light of that, I say, yes, please be the Lord of my life. But to be the Lord of my life, I know you're going to rip this stuff off of me just the way you promised. So, Lord, now, even at this moment, pull all that weight off and get me up and off of this particular nasty cot I've been in. Jesus, in your name I pray this. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to give a confident and resounding, Amen. Lord, you've heard our prayers today. Bid us to walk and follow you as you would wish. May there be such an obvious difference in us today. All the rebellion gone. All of it. That we are amazed. We find ourselves glorifying you for it. Jesus, in your name. Amen. Saints, thank you for the privilege of being able to be in the Word with you for the honor of being your pastor.